Welcome to the next JNIS podcast. Today we're delighted to have Daniel Cummins and Matthew Amons from the Department of Radiology at the University of California, San Francisco, discussing their paper, Cerebrovascular Pulsatile Tinnitus, Causes, Treatments and Outcomes in 164 Patients with Neuroangiographic Correlation. This manuscript is currently on the JNIS website and will be printed in the journal in an upcoming issue within the next two to three months. Prior to beginning our podcast, I'd like to read a word from our sponsors, Rapid Medical Pioneers adjustable intravascular tools that offer physicians expanded capabilities without compromise between safety and efficacy. So if you're looking for your devices to do a bit more for you, solutions such as the Tiger Trever 13, the smallest thrombectomy device in use, adjust to the vessel, allowing you to relax tension of the device prior to retrieval. For more information, email info at rapidmedical.com. Welcome, Dan and Matt, and thank you so much for taking your time this morning to participate in this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, Dan and I are super excited to be here this morning. Excellent. So we'll get started. Pulsatile tinnitus, as you guys both know, has become a symptom that frequently comes to the attention of neurointerventionalists. And as we all know, it can be uh, quite debilitating. So I was uh, intrigued by your manuscript. I thought it was incredibly timely uh, and one that certainly is pertinent to our community. If uh, one or the other of you could please discuss the impetus behind the study, what led you to compile this this data and perform this analysis? Yeah, uh, well, we have this multidisciplinary pulsatile tinnitus clinic at UCSF, and we've been seeing patients here with our colleagues in neurology, and we have some ENT colleagues that work with us, diagnostic neuroradiologists, and a research team. And we have been evaluating patients with pulsatile tinnitus for, for several years, and we realized we had seen you know hundreds and hundreds of them, but we hadn't gone back through them and really sort of figured out what percentage of the patients had a vascular cause, what percentage of them had a dural fistula, or these other causes that we all read about and saw occasionally, like aberrant internal carotid artery. And so uh, Dan, who's a a medical student here and an absolute star, he went back through our our series of 552 patients that we saw in our multidisciplinary setting. And we decided to really focus on the patients that had uh, angiographic analysis, because so far that's really what our gold standard is to identify really the vascular causes of pulsatile tinnitus. And so Dan really put all this together and and went through and found that we had taken 164 of our 552 patients to the angio suite. And because we didn't really know what we were going to find, that's why we, we went back through and searched our data. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's a great series and certainly elucidated a number of causes of pulsatile tinnitus that uh, we're not so commonly aware of. Uh, obviously, you only selected those cases, as you mentioned, about a third that underwent endovascular evaluation. Just kind of at the outset, I'm curious as to some of the other causes of pulsatile tinnitus that did not uh, get incorporated into the study. 
Could you uh, give us a, a brief uh, summary of some of those other causes? Well, I think what's important is that we only took patients to the angio suite when we had a high clinical or imaging-based suspicion that the patient had a dangerous vascular cause of pulsatile tinnitus, or the patients were particularly debilitated by their symptom. If we knew what the cause was based on the imaging, the MRI particularly, we do have an MR protocol that we've been working on and using, and Dan actually wrote the article on that one as well. But if we could make the diagnosis and it wasn't dangerous and the patients weren't debilitated, then we didn't bring them into the angio suite and prove it or anything like that. It was only those that had a very dangerous cause or had were particularly debilitated that we brought to the angio suite. I think overall, the most common cause that we're seeing in our, our clinic is venous sinus stenosis, uh, particularly the lateral transverse sinuses. It's a very similar picture to what we're seeing in patients who have papilledema. That's probably caused by bilateral transverse sinus stenosis, um, but other patients didn't have papilledema. They didn't have headaches. They just had pulsatile tinnitus. And if we could really make the diagnosis clinically, we didn't go much farther than that. The other main causes that we see um, that aren't dangerous would be things like the patient's taking an ototoxic medication, and then it starts right afterwards. Like a Z-Pack or something like that is one of the common medications that's ototoxic. So we do see lots of different causes, lots of vascular causes, and particularly in the venous system, clearly the most dominant cause is transverse sinus stenosis. Yeah, that's a, a particular interest of mine and one that I've been uh, pursuing for, for many years. We've been stenting patients. Uh, obviously, your center has as well. Perhaps you guys can summarize the findings of your study, specifically figure one, as well as the improvements or cure of pulsatile tinnitus as they pertain to the angiographic or venographic findings uh, and treatment. It seems that uh, those patients who sustained the most improvement were those with uh, dural arteriovenous fistulas or, or venous sinus stenting, as you, as you mentioned. But yeah, if you could give us a quick summary of the findings of your analysis. So from figure one of the paper, obviously we had 164 patients who underwent angiography, and we found about 75%, three-fourths of those patients had a cerebrovascular etiology. About 25% had a non-vascular etiology, which we characterized some particular non-vascular causes after final evaluation in the paper. Focusing on the cerebrovascular causes, we found that 20% of patients had an arteriovenous shunting lesion, including a 17 or 8 to 18% with an intracranial shunt, some of those high risk, some of them intermediate, some low risk uh, fistulas. And then we had 3% extracranial uh, spinal or scalp shunting lesions. About 50% of patients had a venous etiology, which uh, included idiopathic intracranial hypertension for patients that had other diagnostic criteria of IIH, uh, including on lumbar puncture. About 20% of patients had transverse sinus or other venous stenosis without a diagnosis of IIH. And then we also saw a fair number of patients with a jugular or condylar venous source or a venous diverticulum. About 7% of patients had an arterial, primarily arterial etiology of PT, which Dr. Amon's already mentioned some 
um, causes including aberrant uh, ICAs, ICA stenosis, uh, brachiocephalic artery stenosis, and uh, other um, kind of idiosyncratic causes of arterial PT. Yeah, and as you elucidated in the manuscript, it uh, appears that those patients with uh, dural arteriovenous fistulas who were treated, uh, nearly 97% of them had resolution of their tinnitus, and nearly 85% of those patients with venous sinus stenosis had resolution as well with stenting. Is that accurate, Dan? Yeah, um, we that's shown in figure two of the paper. We show an example of a patient who had embolization of a dural AVF, as well as an example of a patient who was stented for venous sinus stenosis. As you mentioned, we had 97% of patients who had embolization of a dural AVF had lasting resolution of their PT um, symptoms at last follow-up, and 85% of patients who had stenting of venous sinus stenosis had lasting improvement um, or total resolution of PT at last follow-up. So we found that these were the most effective treatments for symptoms of PT were embolization of dural AVFs and stenting of venous sinus stenosis. Another important element of that, I think, is for dural AVFs in particular, which can portend a a life-threatening condition if they're high risk, PT can be a helpful biomarker experienced directly by the patient for recurrence of a dural AVF or existence of a dural AVF. So I think that was another takeaway um, from the paper for me in particular. Yeah, that really is one of the the clinical hallmarks of successful treatment of dural fistulas and really one of the impetus for for me wanting to do follow-up angiography is when when their tinnitus recurs. Um, Maybe you guys can review your endovascular workup of pulsatile tinnitus. Um, I thought that was uh, fascinating and, and wasn't entirely clear in the manuscript. Did you tailor your procedure to the non-invasive imaging or clinical exam? I, I specifically, what I'm a- asking is, if you suspected an arterial etiology, did you only perform DSA? And also, can you review your indications for performing venous balloon test occlusion? In what setting were you performing this And what was the duration of the uh, balloon test occlusion? Yeah, sure. If we had a patient in whom we thought there was a dangerous arterial cause or a dural arteriovenous fistula, we would start with a diagnostic cerebral angiogram, including subselective angiography of the external carotid arteries, evaluations of the subclavians and vertebral arteries with the camera's position over the neck to make sure that we didn't Uh, you know, miss a cervical fistula that was draining more intracranially. And if the patients were not debilitated by their pulsatile tinnitus symptoms and they didn't have one of those dangerous causes, then we would stop the procedure. We would not then proceed to get venous access and go driving around through the the veins in the head. But if they were severely symptomatic and we had already excluded a dangerous cause, then we get venous access and we start by doing a venogram. So we position a microcatheter in the superior sagittal sinus at the vertex, and we do contrast injections and subtraction angiography planes to evaluate for any particular abnormalities in the anatomy. We also run our arteriogram images out to the venous phase so that we can fully visualize the venous system. Then we do venous manometry. So we do pullback measurements throughout the venous system from the vertex all the way down through 
inferior to the jugular valve at the subclavian veins. Uh, we do both sides. And then when we're finished with that, we do balloon test occlusion, particularly in those patients where they're particularly debilitated. And so we use a transform super compliant seven by 10 balloon. And we have a map that follow basically for every single patient so that we do the same procedure. And we don't tell the patients where we are or if the balloon is up or down. And we ask them over and over again, seriously, like 120 times or something on a scale of zero to 10, how loud is your left or right, whatever it may be, pulsatile tinnitus. And then we inflate the balloon uh, and you can see the balloon, particularly the super compliant balloon deformed by the wall of the sinus. So once it starts to really deform, then we stop the inflation and we wait really just a few seconds and ask them on a scale of zero to 10 if they're, what their pulsatile tinnitus is. And then we deflate the balloon again and ask them again. So really for every position, we do three in the, we do the superior sagittal sinus, we do across the transverse sinus, proximal torcular side of where the typical lateral transverse sinus stenosis is, in the stenosis, lateral to the stenosis, lower in the sigmoid sinus, across the origin of the posterior condylar vein, also called like the sigmoid emissary vein, across where the lateral condylar veins come out at the jugular bulb. We get into those condylar veins and inflate the balloon there as well, in the jugular vein, and then across where we are often seeing jumpiness stenosis at C1 uh, with the styloids anteriorly, and see if we're able to stop the patient's pulsatile tinnitus by stopping the blood flow in a specific portion of the vein, and then have it return again when we deflate the balloon. Similarly, we go to the contralateral side, and when we stop the outflow through the contralateral side, uh, so like if the patient has left-sided pulsatile tinnitus, and we think it's the left transverse sinus stenosis, we stop the outflow in the right transverse sinus, which pushes extra flow through the left, and we see that their symptoms get louder, right? Their pulsatile tinnitus is louder when we occlude the alternate outflow pathway. And then when we deflate the balloon on the right, the sound gets quieter again. So we really perform a very thorough, rigorous, reproducible analysis across all of these patients so that we don't use any sort of my own personal bias of what I think it is when we're trying to identify what the causes of any patient's pulsatile tinnitus, particularly in the venous system. So it's quite a uh, an extensive workup that you're performing with use of the balloon, as you mentioned. One of the things that I thought was interesting was was the UCSF uh, Pulsatile Tinnitus Clinic. Could you describe this clinic and and how it came about? How are patients screened for this clinic? How frequently are you and and Dan attending the clinic? Is there always an interventionalist present uh, during these clinics? Yeah, so I started the the UCSF Pulsatile Tennis Clinic with a friend of mine who's a neurologist here, a stroke neurologist here. And we noticed that there were a large number of patients with dural arterial venous fistulas who maybe weren't being readily diagnosed. And so rather than starting a dural fistula clinic, we decided to to focus on the most common presenting symptom that patients talk about, those who have dural fistulas talk about, which is pulsatile tinnitus. And so we really intended to create a dural fistula center (laughs) 
quite honestly. But what we ended up figuring out is there were all of these other causes which we really didn't understand and we couldn't find a lot of information about. And we were quickly in over our heads. So we had to learn about it. And we had to enroll assistance from our colleagues in, in ENT. And we had a psychiatrist for quite a bit of time. Uh, and we have this multidisciplinary clinic at least once a month. Um, I think now we're up to two times a month. We have had more often clinics than that, uh, as often as once a week, uh, depending on how busy we get. But uh, there is a neurointerventional radiologist at every one of these clinics. There's a neurologist at every one of these clinics. And the ENT surgeons come in when we identify that there is a tumor or some other structural physical structural abnormality in the skull base that's that's responsible for the symptoms. And so patients can get referred to our team if they have pulsatile tinnitus. And then we always do an MRI of the brain, an MR angiogram of the head without contrast time of flight technique, contrast enhanced time resolved MRA of the head and neck that extends posteriorly through the torcula so we can visualize the dural venous sinuses as well. And then post-contrast, SPGR sequences with fat saturation, which allow for really beautiful visualization of the dural venous sinus anatomy. And it also can evaluate for very tiny tumors, um, particularly within the cochlea itself. So every patient gets this specific MRI evaluation before we bring them into the clinic. And then each provider individually evaluates the patient. And then we meet sort of as a team and say, well, did you think this was vascular or structural, or is this a neurogenic patient? Neurogenic is what we're sort of describing the patients where the nerve is firing and telling the brain there is sound when no physical sound is actually being generated. And then based on which of these categories we think the patient falls into, it defines which of the particular physicians in the clinic then follows up with the patients. Obviously, if it's vascular, then it becomes the neurointerventional radiologist patient to then further evaluate and work up as necessary. And then we determine if it's arterial or venous or, or what we should do from there. Just building on that a little bit, you, you describe many pathologies in both the vascular and non-vascular causes of pulsatile tinnitus, including arterial stenoses, venous diverticula, tumors, and vitamin B toxicosis. Guys, are these actually causes of pulsatile tinnitus, or, or should these really be classified as clinical findings discovered on the workup of pulsatile tinnitus? I think a number of the patients that were treated for arterial stenoses didn't actually improve in terms of their pulsatile tinnitus in the long term. Well, I, I think for the importantly for the arterial causes, the, the arterial stenosis patients. Um, we didn't treat them to cure pulsatile tinnitus. Those are patients who already had an infarct and had a high-grade stenosis in the internal carotid artery or in the brachiocephalic artery. And so they were treated really for future stroke prevention um, because they met our typical indications for stenting those patients. So I think that's an important point. And then most of those patients actually either had significant improvement or complete improvement in their symptoms. So I do think that there are arterial causes of pulsatile tinnitus. And I think we can also prove some of them even without doing arterial balloon test occlusion, you know, if, if it's really necessary. 
you can do things like arterial compressions and prove that the patient's sound goes away. So I do think that there are arterial causes of pulsatile tinnitus, and sometimes we can treat them. Many times the risk of treatment is not worth it if we are just trying to improve the patient's pulsatile tinnitus symptom. So we really reserve treatment of those patients if it's a dangerous vascular cause where it would be appropriate to treat it to limit the patient's risk of a future stroke. You mentioned in the manuscript the the scored tinnitus sound level, and you didn't apply it to all of the patients, obviously. But this, um, it clearly seems to be a very subjective scale. I was curious how frequently you use it, and have you been able to draw any correlates with the levels of um, pulsatile tinnitus and specific pathology? That's a good question. Well, as you know, this is a retrospective analysis uh, of charts. And so as we all have evolved uh, and the medical records have evolved, our our practice has evolved as well. And so we sort of eventually, but not initially, developed our standardized approach to the clinical evaluation of a pulsatile tinnitus patient, which included, of course, the severity score that we sort of arbitrarily designed with 10 being, you know, a zero to 10 score, zero is no sound. 10 is uh, the train is driving by the patient's head. Five (laughs) is a loud restaurant. And then we kind of uh, ask the patients where they are at that moment and how bad and how severe does it get for them at times. There are the the tennis functionality index and tennis handicap index um, that are standard in continuous tone tinnitus, which determine how disabled the patient is by their sound, but it doesn't actually indicate how loud the patients are experiencing it. And since tinnitus is a propulsive tinnitus specifically, since that's what we're talking about, is a symptom, we don't have any other method to determine it other than the patient's subjective experience of it. So we just try and be as descriptive as possible and created our own scale Um, But we didn't apply it for the first uh, 100 or so of our um, almost 600 now that we've seen in the multidisciplinary clinic. Uh, But now that we have this, I think one of Dan's future projects, hopefully since he's such a star, uh, would be to go back through and see if we can correlate how loud it is to the different causes. And also we have a physical exam that we've sort of standardized and see what we can learn from just evaluating these patients in the clinical context, see if we can figure out how likely we are to be able to make the diagnosis just on physical exam alone. Interesting. Just to build on that a a little bit, Matt and Dan, you mentioned that this obviously was a retrospective analysis uh, of this patient cohort, and you state in your limitations that this analysis was to you know, serve as a benchmark for prospective study design in, in evaluating endovascular techniques. Can you guys give us some specific examples of trial designs and, and where you're, you plan on taking this work in the future? I think that piggybacking off of what we were just talking about with tinnitus being a subjective symptom and PT being a, a subjective symptom typically, um, one of the, the interesting kind of fields that some people are working on is uh, a device that actually measures sound intravenously or intraarterially during angiography, actually measuring the sound to seeing if we can quantify the degree of 
PT using a, an objective measure. So I think that's kind of some some interesting work that you know could be done that is that is being worked on. I will say that uh, we did see a trend toward primarily venous uh, etiologies having slightly worse um, tinnitus severity. Um, some of that may be that the patients with venous PT that underwent angiography trended toward having uh, more severe PT, um, but this result was, wasn't significant on, on statistical uh, testing. But uh, Dr. Amons, I'd love to hear your thoughts on other potential prospective studies on en- enrolling patients that are coming into to large center PT clinics, um, some of the work that, you know, ideas that you might have for that. Well, I do think that there is a lot of work that we can do in better understanding the clinical evaluation in the office setting of a pulsatile tennis patient. But I also think that we have a lot of interest as a field right now in venous sinus stenting. And I think there seems to be pretty reasonable agreement among centers that it's a, a good option for patients who have papilledema that either are going blind or they're refractory to acetazolamide, uh, weight loss, topiramate, the typical sort of medical interventions. But I think we're really starting to develop that field and are treating more and more patients with pulsatile tinnitus um, who have imaging uh, showing a transverse sinus stenosis with or without pressure gradients. But we don't have a lot of data that tells us whether or not we're going to be successful in helping these patients. So I think we're sort of ripe for a prospective trial to look at symptomatic venous sinus stenosis as a its own entity. Uh, those who have apoedema, those who have headaches, who maybe have been mischaracterized as having a migraine, but actually have transverse sinus stenoses, or those who simply have pulsatile tinnitus and are very disabled by it. How successful are we at treating each of these individual symptoms of venous sinus stenosis? Are they different? Can we learn which patients are best treated or not? And I think that at this point, we have enough retrospective data to suggest that we have a lot of uh, promise here, but it's time to move it towards the, the prospective field. I completely agree. I think it's a burgeoning field and certainly one that, you know, retrospectively we've seen now, you know, the tremendous efficacy of venous sinus stenting and not only reducing uh, pulsatile tinnitus, but also, you know, helping with the subjective findings of headache and so forth. Uh, okay, guys, any were there any other specific points that uh, we didn't cover that you wanted to make sure we got into uh, into the podcast? Yeah, I think it's probably also important to mention that these are patients who are being sent to a pulsatile tennis clinic, and many of them travel internationally to come and see our team. And so we are probably going to see a different patient population than maybe somebody is seeing in, in clinical practice somewhere else where they don't have like a big multidisciplinary team that is pulling patients in. So we're probably seeing very motivated patients, patients who are particularly (laughs) debilitated by their symptoms. And that may be different than the general population is seeing. In addition, many of our patients have seen very good otolaryngologists, uh, ENT surgeons, have had excellent imaging evaluations. Many of them have already had five or six imaging studies 
before they get sent to our clinic. So a lot of the typical tumors, the paragangliomas, the schwannomas, these are going to be already screened out before they get sent to us. So we're seeing a very large number of vascular causes and a very low number of tumors and other structural causes. And it's probably because of just the makeup of what our team is and that the patients who are getting sent to us, the, the standard classical diagnoses have already been excluded. Dan, was there anything else that, that we missed? Yeah, I think the only other thing that I think, you know, um, providers that are seeing these patients in clinic um, will know this, but is just the profound impact on mental health and quality of life that this can have on patients and can really define their life. And, you know, they're hearing this constant noise. That was what motivated me. My interest in this work was I saw a patient that got stented for venous sinus stenosis and you know, woke up in tears that you know she no longer was hearing the sound that had was ruining her life for for years, um, and she had traveled some distance from out of state to get stented. So, I think that you know just the to to put on providers' minds, um, neurointerventionalists, that not only can can this work and this symptom be associated with life threatening things like dural AV fistulas, but you know more even benign cases of IIH or, or venous sinus stenosis. This this can be a a really big deal for patients and can really can be the thing that they care about, you know, most because it's just so profoundly impacting their lives. Yeah, I completely agree. The uh, the train going through the room is <laughs> is not something that you want to live with uh, for very long. So I completely understand the rationale for for treatment. We'll wrap this up, guys. I, I really appreciate uh, your time today discussing your manuscript, Cerebrovascular Pulsatile Tinnitus Causes, Treatments, and Outcomes in 164 Patients with Neuroangiographic Correlation that's currently on the JNIS website and will be featured in an upcoming print issue of the JNIS. So thank you so much for your time today. This was uh, fascinating work uh, and important for our field. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here.